So I went deep, 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 deep into Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> and I counted how many contributors to Rotten Tomatoes, the people who, critics and bloggers and writers and uh, who, and there's a very strict set of criteria that allow you to be a blogger, critic or something. Um, and of those people that are allowed to rate on the tomato meter, there are 168 women. And I thought that's absolutely fantastic. And there are, if there were 168 men, it would be balanced. If there were 268 men, it would be unfair, but I would be used to it. If there were 368, if there were 468, if there were five, six, actually there are 760 men who weigh in on the tomato meter. Now, I submit to you that men and women are not the same. They like different things. Sometimes they like the same things, but sometimes their tastes diverge. If the tomato meter is slighted so completely to one set of tastes, that drives box office in the United States, absolutely. My name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames Cast. On today's episode, I'm going to be looking through the archives of my film collection to embarrass myself with another guilty pleasure, of which I will unveil in due course. I'll also be taking a look at the recent Blu-ray release of Kevin Brownlow's It Happened Here. Um, before I get to all that, though, I'm not really going to do a review as such, but more a kind of look at... Kind of the state of film culture as, as it stands at the moment um, and all this has really come from um, a series of interactions that I've had with uh, friends and people on social media um, and a, f a few kind of um, colleagues that I, I know who work in the kind of the film and entertainment industry in particular I'm going to be looking at the Me Too movement and the state of Film criticism. Now, now a few weeks ago, I saw the trailer for Ocean's Eight, and if ever a film reeked of ladies, if you don't want to go and watch the World Cup, watch this instead. It was this. These types of films, let's call them football tonic films, are universally insufferable rom-coms that in themselves require their own subgenre, commonly known as good films, as a decent alternative to them. Of course, Ocean's 8's selling point was slightly like the other Ocean's films, only of an all-female cast. It looks utter garbage, prompted me to tweet, I would rather nail my nuts to a sinking ship than watch it. Now, little did I know that the ramifications of this tweet and the dark path it would lead me down. If I haven't mentioned it already, I suppose I should get this out of the way. I am a 38-year-old white male who has enjoyed a comfortable life I've never really wanted for anything, and I consider myself to be a very lucky person. Politically, I lean to the right on some issues and to the left on others. At the last election, I voted for the Green Party, the one before that the Liberal Democrats, and before that the Labour Party. All that being said, I find modern politics utterly unbearable. The polarisation in society has made it virtually impossible to have anything resembling a normal, productive conversation on the topic without resorting to throwing crude labels back and forth at any hint of a divergence in opinion. A classic example for me being the day after Donald Trump became president. I suggested Trump should be judged on his record as president and he had earned at least that right. It was a completely fair point, I thought. I certainly wasn't endorsing him. I was simply saying that we should judge him by what he does as president. Only it wasn't a fair point, it seemed. I was told in no uncertain terms that it was borderline offensive and that Trump was nothing more than a Nazi set to usher in a new Reich and to even suggest he wasn't was indicative of my own classic closet fascism. Things weren't helped by the fact that a friend had jokingly brought me a Make America Great Again cap, which I happened to wear one day on a shoot as a joke. It wasn't seen as a joke. I was promptly told to take it off and was told that it might be offensive to some of the people I was working with. Well, that sure told me. 
The final straw, though, came when a friend of mine and I were discussing the TV series The Handmaiden's Tale. In her words, it was exactly what is happening in America right now. I asked if we could review what she had actually meant. For it to be true, the following would have to be occurring. Women would be banned from all forms of public life, denied any rights at all in fact, raped in order to force them to have children which would be moved from their care immediately, sent to concentration camps for being sterile, hung for being homosexual, just to name but a few. Now quite obviously, nothing even remotely like this is happening in America now. There are places where it is, but God forbid we can't say where because this opens up another can of worms, delete accusations and other nonsense counter debates such as the West has its issues, blah blah blah. The rebuttal to my points was even more baffling than the original comparison between the show that she had made in reality. She decided that the reason I couldn't see the comparison was because I was part of the very patriarchy that had enabled it, the it being the thing in the series that wasn't actually happening anyway. So in effect, I was complicit in a fictional dystopian future that was apparently happening right here and now in the modern world, even though it actually wasn't. I was confused. Was there actually a world I wasn't seeing, or was somehow I utterly ignorant of it? I was pretty certain by this point I was living in a Matrix-style simulation. So despite the fact that what was actually happening in The Handmaiden's Tale hadn't exactly happened, it was happening because I was part of the problem that was making this non-existent thing happen, even though it clearly wasn't. But things were only about to get more bizarre. We've recently had the Harvey Weinstein scandal, and of course this has seen an upsurge in the Me Too movement. Obviously this painful moment of reflection, indeed purging of Hollywood's bad players, is all well and needed. Yet God forbid anyone dare suggest that in reality a few bad players, what is it not in fact every single man working in Hollywood, and indeed society as a whole? No. This was proof for some, if proof be needed, that male patriarchy was indeed the shadow state, cruelly imposing a system of oppression on women, preventing them from earning equal pay whilst they simply put up with a constant level of harassment from men, from inappropriate advances at work to being heckled in the street. No, enough was enough. Now some truly awful people had rightfully been exposed and their careers have subsequently been destroyed. One need only look at the recent $138 opening of Kevin Spacey's new film. Reputations though, I believe, have a right to be protected. Woody Allen has never been convicted of a sexual assault of a child, and for the record, I believe him. I don't think he is a sexual predator. He was. He has been making films in Hollywood for decades with a plethora of established and up-and-coming stars. In the wake of the Me Too movement came the Never Work With Him Again people. Yes, all these people who have been fully aware before accepting a lead role in one of his films that there were child molestation allegations against him. The fact that he was never found guilty of any crime did not matter in the least. And in these situations, I am indeed more inclined to decide with the person claiming to be the victim. However, in this instant, I genuinely felt that Alan deserved to be treated as innocent. This didn't stop an outpouring of accusations for calls for Alan's career to be destroyed, regardless of the fact that he had not been found guilty of a single crime. Actors refusing to label him a monster have been publicly slammed for not condemning a man who, again, has never been found guilty of any crime. And to be clear, I want to see men punished for being rapists and abusers, but I also firmly believe that we should have standards in place to facilitate this to ensure that all due process is adequately served. In time, I hope this occurs and that wholesale change will occur. However, there has been another aspect to all this, an awakening of sorts that I do not feel is productive and is leading to nowhere other than the erosion of film culture. Now obviously it wasn't just Hollywood that needed purging, it was film, the wider film culture in general, most notably the world of film criticism, and one could expect the net result has been a tragically dull and typically inane quagmire in which films and film culture is dissected and rationalised in a fashion designed to extract every last sinew of enjoyment from film entirely. 
films becoming judged on a matrix, how many female speaking roles there are, how many of them are minorities, how much violence committed against women, how many women were involved in the film production, does the lead character merely act subservient to a male lead, was the person that wrote this film from a known minority's background, are they gay, so on and so on. And of course if a female critic says they enjoyed a film and a male disagrees with their view, well that's simply because he is another vile man crushing the woman's voice and stopping said woman from having a career of their own, from having a career in their own YouTube channel. Indeed, the issue really is men. Men do all the reviewing and men do all the filmmaking and very particular males, white males. Increasing therefore, film culture is one giant white boys club. Superficially, of course, that does appear to be the case. A recent report by the Amberg School for Communication and Journalism discovered, that, discovered from their preferred source, which I shall get to shortly, that 77.8% of reviews were written by men and 22.2% by women. 82% of reviewers were white and 18% from underrepresented racial backgrounds. And it got worse, white males contributed 67.3%, reviews of women of colour 2.5%, white women 21.5% and non-white men 8.7%. Dr Lacey Smith, founder and director of the Amberg Inclusion Initiative said of the report, this report reveals the absence of women of colour working as reviewers, especially on movies built around female and underrepresented leads. We have seen the ramifications of an industry in which the content sold to audiences created and reviewed by individuals who are primarily white men, creating inclusive hiring practice at every stage of the filmmaking and review process is essential to meeting business imperatives, ensuring that we see diverse perspective reflected in the society. There was one major issue I found with this report, and that was the aforementioned source. Yes, because every single piece of data in this report came from one place. Rotten Tomatoes. Yes, Rotten Tomatoes, just Rotten Tomatoes. The report concluded with a call for a 30-30-2020 hiring goal. This meant 30% white males, 30% white females, 20% underrepresented males and 20% underrepresented females. Now I found this report to be largely ridiculous because it seems to fail to grasp that people make different choices. In the digital age also, there is nothing stopping anyone from having a voice and making that voice heard through blogs, YouTube, dare I say podcasts, you name it, if you want to talk about it, there are outlets for you to do it. And herein lies one of the self-fulfilling prophecies of this movement. Any woman whose work is submitted to a male editor of a publication and is not published is clearly being discriminated against because they are female. I recently came across Glasgow University lecturer Rebecca Harrison, or Becca as she seems to be like to be called, who for reasons I will explain shortly, I became aware of on Twitter an identified feminist, she's a university lecturer and published author. I noted Harrison took to Twitter to describe having an article she had written for The Guardian, pulled and replaced by another one written by a man about what she seemed to be was a subject that only a woman could discuss. She posted screen grabs from her reply to The Guardian, in which of course she drew attention to the fact it was a man telling her her article would not be featured. Of course this was the only reason, and indeed she did post her original article, and in truth it didn't seem to be that great a piece, but the point was she was a woman being oppressed by the patriarchy. Now again, Harrison is a university lecturer and published author. Clearly, life has been an unending struggle for her. Now, Harrison's standpoint is dangerous. Should her article have been published in The Guardian just because she was a female voice? Should editors be placed under pressure to ensure, regardless of quality, work they publish meets the criteria of representation? I would say no, and I can't think of a better example than sight and sound. Now I read articles almost completely ignorant of who has actually written them. Some are far more interesting than others, however on the whole the magazine normally features an excellent selection of criticism, essays and opinions. It clearly has an editorial process that works. In the age of digital media, Sight and Sound is a print publication that has a strong, robust position in the newsstand. 
Why should, therefore, it be expected to operate a policy of quota-based numbers in relation to the writers it commissions? This process only works if there is a prerequisite number of quality writers within target groups. The argument, of course, is that, so, that such publications are edited by white men, and they are going to be biased towards articles written by white men. I disagree. Sight and Sound is currently edited by Nick James, a white male, and I would contest that after 20 years of reading it, it is under his stewardship the best it has ever been. Far from being a working man's club of blokey lad culture, a cursory glance at the contributing writers shows a richly diverse male and female and mixed race critics. I've no idea about sexual preference and I don't really care either particularly. Each one is there on merit, which should be the very basis on which everyone's careers advances. One of the issues that I have with this kind of form of film criticism and the current outcry in the culture is that you can always find a reason to be offended by something. Yes, Sight and Sound does have female writers, but are they the right kind of females? Are they gay? How could a white woman write a film about a black transgender single mother? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy where gaps are constantly found and used to reinforce position that simply fail to take into account personal choices, or that minority voices are being unheard. Yet this group appear to be utterly unwilling to engage in any type of discussion in which a person disagrees with their position. This is very much a closed society. You are either with them or against them. And of course, the reason you're against them is because you are very part of the problem which has caused their existence in the first place, i.e. a white male. Now, back to Professor Becca Harrison. How she came onto my radar was that she had gone through and analysed the Star Wars films for the amount of screen time given to female characters. What she found was that they were overwhelmingly male-dominated affairs. The worst with the, I suppose, best Star Wars film in her view for its representation being the terrible Last Jedi. And Harrison somewhat tongue-in-cheekly posted a tweet that her rankings were now the film's new canon. As a self-confessed Star Wars geek, Harrison analysis is exactly the type of nerdy thing Star Wars do. And of course, it's an academic excuse to watch those prequels again. And after all, we all kind of have a soft spot for them, really. Don't we? What it wasn't is anything of actual worth. It's neither surprising or indicative of anything untoward and sinister. And why is this? Well, let's be honest, it's a fictional tale of a galactic conflict and a conflict written by men. No, it's not very inclusive and it's not trying to be either, nor should it. The Last Jedi is interesting, however, in that it feels exactly the type of film created to fill some kind of quota system and the result speaks for itself. It is a legitimately terrible film. Should we applaud it for its inclusivity? No, Ryan Johnson deserves to be criticised for his terrible script and the utter derision from the Star Wars universe. Kathleen Kennedy has taken one of the most popular film franchises ever and actually made a Star Wars film that has lost money as a result, I would argue, of The Last Jedi. This is insane. She deserves to be fired from her position, not harassed, not attacked, but simply held accountable and fired. And yes, of course, it's all the fault of toxic fandom, i.e. white males. Spitting their collective dummies out at their beloved Star Wars has been taken over by women and social justice warriors to ruin their childhoods. And for sure, there are some utter idiots who take online offence to absurd levels, especially when it comes to Star Wars. But raising objections to The Last Jedi is simply indicative of the actual problem, i.e. the fact you are the original sin, a privileged white male. Harrison, I noticed, also took time to chastise Mark Cousins for not including enough women in his story of film documentary. In her words, he was privileged. I like to think the word she was looking for is talented. She did actually take time to have a go at me as well because despite having a go at Mark Cousins, she didn't actually tag him on the tweet. And this is what I find to be particularly strange. And when I replied to her, I actually did tag him in, which she saw in as a part of my place to cause an argument. And again, this is part of this closed mentality of this group. How is it having an argument. I actually read an article with Mark Cousins where he had tried to interview a certain female director and she hadn't wanted to be interviewed because of other reasons. I think it was because Andrew Tartakovsky was going to be in the series as well. Um, and again, why not ask Mark Cousins 
about the series. Why not ask if there are any factors that may have meant that there weren't many women in in the series? This is the whole point of opening a dialogue and having conversations, but that isn't what these people want to do. They don't want to have to have conversations. They want to exist in an echo chamber. But anyway, back to The Last Jedi. I'm sure there are people who actually liked it and good for them, I'm glad they do. But praising a film simply because of its inclusiveness is absurd. The characters are badly written and the story is particularly weak. Just by having women and minorities in roles doesn't simply work when the story they are in is totally wasted. And when I read positive reviews of The Last Jedi, it was a sense I felt that people were trying to convince themselves it was a good film, seeing a certain nobility in its intention and glossing over its failure of execution. I feel this is a gender-driven movement and I don't personally see how it can be taken seriously to anyone outside of it. I recently watched the film A Quiet Place, a sort of indie science fiction monster film that caused me quite a few jumps and was mean enough to bump off a kid in the first five minutes. I liked the film, but as an exercise I decided to savage it along the lines of a social justice patriarchal nonsense film critic. Quiet Place through this lens become a a cesspool of toxic masculinity and the reinforcement of the patriarchy. So here is a segment from my pretend outraged review of A Quiet Place. And if you haven't seen the film, there are going to be spoilers in it. So, okay, so here we go now. As the head of the family, Lee, played by John Krasinski, whom by the way, is the film's writer and director. Surprise, surprise, he is constantly saving his family from teaching them skills to live to trying to make a hearing aid for his daughter, Regan. The family unit is therefore portrayed as a stereotypical, idealised family akin to the frontier western. Father defends the homestead whilst the women do women things such as have children, wash and prepare the food for the men. Here Regan is forbidden to travel with him, to venture away from the farm they are holed up in, presumably because she lacks the necessary male skills to hunt and fish, and presumably stay out of trouble. After all, the child only died as a result of her disobeying her father's correct male direction at the start of the film. The film's premise ensures silence must be maintained at all times. It also acts as a convenient metaphor for the female voice. Silenced and quashed, in the real world we don't need noise-seeking monsters to silence us. The patriarchy is doing that just fine. A Quiet Place revels in toxic masculinity, with son Marcus regularly being groomed by father as the future protector of the family. And of course, he would eventually get to save his idiot sister again, who obviously needs to be saved by men. Marcus, however, is never allowed to be a child and never once is given the opportunity to ride against his father's seeming obsession with him conforming to a strict gender type. Does he even identify as a male? God forbid he is gender fluid, or at the very least undecided. We can have all the aliens in this world, but what is even more outlandish is a young man actually questioning gender norms and readdressing the patriarchy. In the film's New World Order, it seems, there is no room for anything other than reinforcement of cultural norms that always ensure women are kept out of the boardroom and that men are the gatekeepers and guardians of female destiny and advancement. Whether the film truly offends, however, is its conclusion. After Lee has, of course, sacrificed for his family, the remaining members must fight off the alien horde. The answer lays in Regan's newly functioning hearing aid, which from the grave Lee has managed to turn into his male creation, which Regan and mother Evelyn, played by Emily Blunt, accidentally discover that the aliens are sensitive to sound waves. Yet this discovery is purely accidental. Regan is told early not to go into daddy's lab and God for women should women have access to such a place. And by chance, not through any lengthy experimentation and discovery, do the women discover their enemy has a weakness. A Quiet Place doesn't want you to see them work out on their own. After all, 70% of all scientists' jobs are taken by men, but instead through sheer luck and convenience to discover that the promiscuous meddling of Daddy shows that it is males who are the true saviors of the world and protectors of the family. Like a character in Sicario, Blunt is merely a plot device to advance male-driven narratives. This film makes you want to think they are woke. They are not. They are merely playing lip service to addressing the disparity of decent roles in Hollywood. And of course, both are written and directed by men. 
A Quiet Place is a horror film of sorts, made all the more terrifying by how much it resembles our home. The family unit has evolved. It can mean many things to many people. What it doesn't have to mean is a man and wife and their perfectly gender-conforming children. Both Hollywood all in, and the all-male club, the days we see gender neutrality in the family unit on the big screen seem further away than ever. That concludes that part. And I'm back to being me now. Now, what is so surprising about writing and thinking about this is how easy it is. We currently have a culture that is actively seeking to be offended. And of course, there's so much to be found in film. White lead character, well, why isn't he black? Single mum, why isn't she gay? Film about COO, why isn't the board reflective broader society? And nothing is safe. Even if you like Disney, for example, well, watch out. You could be a white supremacist and not even know it because, of course, that's the subtext of Frozen. And don't you dare dress your daughter as Moana or you better be aware that that's actual cultural appropriation. But you might score some points, I suppose, if you're your son, you dress as Moana. It is painful to listen to. However, I am becoming increasingly aware that it's becoming louder and more pervasive. I actually laughed at the trailer for the J.J. Abraham produced Overlord when I noticed that the lead character was black. Well, why did this make me laugh? Well, the film takes place during D-Day with our hero parachuting into action. Now, black soldiers didn't fight in the front line. They were reduced to support roles. I know that's awful, yes, and I know it's a film. But in a way, it felt such an obvious thing to do, especially in light of J.J. Abraham's self-confessed desire to ensure that minorities are represented throughout his films. Now, I know that we see historical inaccuracies in all films, and of course you will. And Overlord just seemed, not that I found it offensive, it just amused me because it seemed slightly obvious, but it did get me thinking. What if, for example, we see a film about the American General Patton, who was being played by Denzel Washington? Would this detract from the experience of seeing the film, or would it be a simple case of the best man getting the job? Now we point at the ridiculousness of the likes of John Wayne playing Genghis Khan, yet somehow it seems that we wouldn't be able to laugh and say it's utterly ridiculous to see, for example, black people playing Romans for the sake of making a diverse cast. And would this actually be ludicrous, or would it even be a conversation worth having? I'm not sure. Personally, I think I would find it quite detracting. But this is where we have arrived at. This obsession with identity politics is, as far as I'm concerned, a form of cultural suicide. We are sucking the life out of the enjoyment of films. I want to watch films like Elle and not have them shelved for fears of offending. I don't want to see characters in films specifically there to tick a box. I do feel this is also indicative of a kind of ignorance that there is towards cinema. There is, of course, world cinema. Africa has a thriving industry, as does Asia. And I wonder if people within these industries are concerning themselves about which sections of their societies are being underrepresented. And for some reason, I very much doubt it. And the weaponizing of supposed gender imbalance needs to be checked. Didn't get your article published? We'll read it again. Was it actually any good enough in the first place? If your action is to assume that you're the victim of discrimination, then I dare suggest your career possibly isn't going to lead anywhere other than assembling an army of outraged followers on Twitter. And of course, I'm glad that people like Harvey Weinstein have been thrown out of the industry. Good. And hopefully we won't see that type of thing repeated. But, and I still believe we need a reality check of sorts. Harvey Weinstein isn't every man alive. White male editors of magazines most likely only discriminate on quality alone. I, for one, want to watch films from a variety of places, and those films are available to me. What I don't want is a sanitised, dull cinema in which films are applauded for being daring or risque merely on account of the message they have or the quotas they are fulfilling. That, to me, would be the death of film culture. This is the voice of British resistance. The German conquest of England has brought with it everything which loyal Englishmen despise. We must fight them whenever and wherever we can. What would have happened if the German army had crossed the English Channel?
vast German army has successfully invaded England. With the capitalist and communist tyrants driven out, the English people have welcomed us and their new freedom under National Socialism. As it was in every occupied country, so it was in England. There were those who collaborated. National Socialism offers them a new philosophy, a new way of life. There were those who resisted and fought back. The appalling thing about fascism is that you've got to use fascist methods to get rid of it. According to everyone alive, we are currently living in a new age of fascism. Donald Trump is a Nazi, Theresa May is a Nazi, and just about anyone who doesn't agree with anyone is also a Nazi. Now, of course, it's all utter nonsense, and in my opinion, actually dilutes the horror of Nazism and the horrendous crimes committed in its name. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the BFI have recently decided to re-release Kevin Brownlow and Andrew Mollow's It Happened Here on Blu-ray. It is a quite remarkable film that somehow doesn't, and indeed hasn't garnered, the critical acclaim I believe it truly deserves. Brandon was only 18 when he began work on the film before coming across Andrew Mollo, who was a something of a World War II enthusiast and he and Brownlow got together and decided to reshoot vast amounts of the film, which would become the It Happened Here we all know and love today. The result is a science fiction film of sorts about an alternative history in which Britain is being occupied by the Nazis. The film focuses on Pauline, an Irish citizen living in England who flees the countryside due to partisan activity and moves to London, whereby she finds herself having to join the party in order to find any kind of work and a stable life. Pauline begins to see the effect of fascism firsthand, the racism, the murderous policies, yet hope may be at hand. The Russians are regrouping and crucial troops stationed in England are being redeployed to the Urals. The partisans are growing more confident and an American fleet has been deployed off the coast. Now, as I've mentioned, I think It Happened Here is a profoundly underrated film, and people will claim that it's more relevant than ever. But in fact, the conversation should be around, why is it so underrated? Brownlow and Mollo's approach is kind of verite in its execution. It reminded me of the works of Peter Watkins's The War Game, with footage reassembled to make it look like newsreel, and a handheld aesthetic recalling cinematic styles from Italian neorealism to the likes of Jean-Luc Godard and the French new wave. You can tell it's a film being made by young men. Rather than sitting around lamenting their lack of budget, Brown and Mollo simply got on with the job and just made the film regardless. And its lack of budget never detracts. Derelict Land perfectly fills in for bombed out streets and the screenplay does a convincing job of creating a world that expends way beyond the screen through simple words and dialogue. I couldn't help but draw comparisons between this and Amazon's series The Man in the High Castle. With its huge budget, it feels like a cross between Wolfenstein game series and a hipster showreel. Once you get over the novelty of Nazi iconographies in 50s Americana, you'd have a slightly dull series in characters of whom I'd be hard-pressed to name any of, despite the fact I've seen two seasons of it. And It Happens Here feels far more convincing as well. Due to its apparent banality, we often see Pauline in a variety of locations we know ourselves, the the bus, the office, the pub, the hospital, and the living room of residents' houses. Presumably due to production costs, the camera is always at eye level, making us feel far more intimately involved with the scenes, and in each of these places, we hear about the effects of the occupation. Giving oneself to the party, fighting through crime, rooting out undesirables, and supporting the cause. Pauline is presented as apolitical, she is more interested in getting by rather than cuddling up to the party, and one does get the rough sense of her naivety whenever she discusses what is going on. And there is quite there is something quite understandable about this. After the invasion of Iraq, the occupying forces were amazed at the amount of Iraqis who were Ba'ath Party members. And they subsequently decided to make them all redundant in depathification. Of course, what they'd failed to realise was that to get a job in any form of social service, like a school teacher or civic official, 
one had to be a member of the Bath Party, despite their own personal objections. In the words of a friend of mine, it was necessary collaboration for a great deal, many of people. And Pauline clearly rejects fascist ideology, but she's willing to become part of the apparatus of that ideology in order to get by. Is she a collaborator or is there something slightly more understandable about her motives? The film pretty much leaves you for it to decide, but I would contest it doesn't really try to address either because it happened here is a surprisingly political film that wants you to look at fascism and just see it for how awful it is in of itself. In its effect, Paula is kind of a cipher. A great deal many war films about the Second World War eschew politics altogether when it comes to the politics of fascism. Yet this is very much a film about that subject, and through the setting in England we once again get a sharp reminder of the awfulness of what fascism represents. And this is done in the context of what is an unfamiliar setting for this type of event, i.e. our own country. And you can see the practical effects of it in our society. As an exercise after seeing the film, I did a rather scary experiment and worked out that in the department I work in, at least four people would be executed and three people would have their children euthanized. It was a scary and quite horrifying realization. Pauline comes face to face when she's sent to work at a convalesc convalescence hospital sorry, and treat diseased foreign workers. Administering their nightly medicine to a bunch of newly arrived workers, she is in fact murdering them unbeknownst. What follows is a montage of her co-workers justifying what is happening, and the dehumanising of the victim is all, all too familiar to hear. Their time has come, it's better for them, etc, etc, and the next time we see Pauline she's handcuffed to an SS soldier presumably on her way to a rather grisly end. I found the film's conclusion to be profoundly disturbing, with the Allies having emboldened the resistance who promptly round up a group of surrendering German soldiers. After liberating them of their possessions, they are massacred whilst being watched by a group of American soldiers. Watkins and Mollo again place you in the action, with the camera almost taking a point of view position, and this is of sorts a war crime of which you feel you are part of, and given who the people are, being mowed down, it's hard to condemn what's happening, even if you do recall in horror. I have, and I am ashamed to admit this, once watched an ISIS video showing the execution of some Syrian soldiers. The soldiers standing looking at the camera, clearly where it was going to happen them, but paralysed by fear, and also, perhaps, having some strange sense of hope that they might escape the situation. What disturbed me so much about this footage was the glee and ease in which the ISIS soldiers took part in the horror that unfolds. The sheer level of sadism on display is profoundly disturbing, and yet when I was watching it happen here, it almost seemed shot for shot at times with this video. And I'm not sure what Watkins and Molo were making a statement about the inherent cruelty in man, but the visual similarities were jarring to say the least, much of which says power of these images. Indeed, there are moments in the film that are equally chilling. As Pauling arrives in London, she comes face to face with the Jewish ghetto. The film cuts to archive footage of what I believe to be the Warsaw ghetto. And again, it's hard to see because we put it into the context that this is actually being set in England. And it's not hard to imagine. For example, I live in Manchester, it has a large Jewish population. What if this they were subrogated and fenced off in my own city? And I also couldn't help but draw comparisons between Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Prise Marin, which shows a French village under an occupation. And it doesn't take long for the ideology of the occupiers to filter through to the villages. Why are there Jews in the schools? Surely they're just taking up the places of non-Jews, etc. And in what happened here, we have a similar kind of psychosis of acceptance. Is everyone like Pauline merely going about what they do to, for the sake of appearance, or is something far darker at work? And the only real criticism I can level at the film is Pauline as a character never really truly convinces as I would like. Given the film is so conventional, I find myself more interested in its wider themes and not necessarily so much about her. But again, that might be the point. She's quite functional, I suppose. As I said, she seems more like a cipher to explore the film's larger themes. But the more I sell the film, and I've watched it twice since I bought it, the more I see how 
are so underrated it is it never crops up in discussions about the best British films and I really do think it deserves to Brown and Mono show a tremendous maturity as such young filmmakers they repurpose the iconography of fashion torchlight parade rambling anti-semitic speeches and replace the creepiness of German news off footage with showing German troops marching down past the houses of parliament the repurposing of such imagery into familiar environments unsettles and unrightly it should and it happened here isn't a reflection of what's happening now with the current nazi hysteria but it should serve as a timely reminder of what fascism actually is and why we should be so rightly horrified of it now this is i've owned it happened here in various formats this is most definitely the best it's ever going to look some of the footage there is a subtle difference i think in some of the quality of the footage the obviously the newsreel uh, sequences we've seen which are real are going to look a little bit more downgraded than the the actual um, 16 millimeter stuff that we see but sometimes it's absolutely crystal clear that it's as well i think the um I don't, I don't know whether or not it's been specially done for the blu-ray release but it certainly looks like um some kind of color correction has been done to make everything and it's a black and white film um to make every all the scenes match and the, it's just overall i, I as well as I really impressed with the sound it was very um, it was surprisingly clear and free of noises of scratches and whatnot and i think it's, it's an absolutely tip-top release um there's also some great features on it um an interview with kevin browner which is about an hour long which is absolutely fascinating some archival material um i'm not sure that this release to my knowledge this is only a region b release and i i, I think this film w- would fit in fact just fine in something like the Criterion Collection or um, something like a Twilight Time uh, release over in America although it does always frustrate me when they only do those 3,000 pressings but overall this is the best version of It Happened Here I've ever seen and I can hardly I can certainly recommend checking it out In the future after the Great War our civilization lies in ruin government does not exist Technology has been erased, and everything man remembers is gone. Out of the chaos, a lawless army will arise to prey on the few survivors. But to a people who have lost their hope. You are a dangerous man. I can see it in your eyes. He will give them courage. I have a feeling about you. He will restore their memories of the past. It's the individual that counts. These people don't need dreams. They need help. Are you going to bring them that? I want him bound. I want him dealt with. He will unite them. You have a gift, Postman. With a message of freedom. I challenge the leadership of the clan. You want a war? I'll give you... Kevin Costner, Academy Award winning director of Dances with Wolves, brings you an epic new vision of our future. There's gonna be new laws! There's gonna be peace! Okay, so now I'm going to embarrass myself and talk about a truly terrible film that I actually really love. Now, one can only surmise that when Kevin Costner approached Warner Brothers to make his post-apocalyptic fable, The Postman, a particularly good batch of cocaine had found found its way onto the famous studio lot. Either that or Kevin Costner had evidence that could have led to the arrest and detention of Warner executives. And in order to secure their lives, they allowed Costner $60 million and told him to do whatever he wanted. Any of those scenarios are to me more plausible than anyone reading this script and saying, do you know what, Kevin, actually, that we really see a hit here, off you go. Released in December 1997, The Postman was a unmitigated disaster, savaged by critics and ignored by audiences. It marked the end of the decade that was Costa's most successful. From the Oscar-winning Dances of Wolves to the ridiculous yet fun Robin Hood Prince of Thieves to JFK and the Bodyguard, Costner was box office gold. Then things began to turn slightly sour with the failure of Wire Earp, a genuinely good western that failed at the box office, followed by The War, which is a film I've never heard of either, and then Waterworld. 
stories of sinking sets and apparently being the most expensive film ever made, Waterworld was not actually a flop, but it had the stench of disaster about it. It was the 90s Heaven's Gate. Nothing about it seemed to have worked. Reed White's with Costner and director Roger Donaldson at each other's throats to what direction to take the film in. Donaldson eventually walked with Costner taking over directing duties. Now it's a big, bold, dumb film. It's not a stinker for sure. It's kind of interesting, but ultimately it's not really anything of anything. But clearly it planted a seed in Costner's mind. Audiences were seen didn't mind spending a few hours in his companies. And don't forget, Waterworld was not a flop. After the audience-friendly tin-cup, Costner was ready, back in the director's chair and ready to make his greatest epic yet, The Postman. Based on the novel by David Brim, the synopsis of which actually does sound really quite good fun, it's not hard to see why Costner was attracted to the project. The eternal drifter, alone in the wilderness, saving the world from the bad guys and leading mankind to a better place. And let's be honest, it does sound like Dances with Wolves does science fiction. So let me be clear. I am not trying to convince you that The Postman is a good film, but I cannot deny it has a charm to it. Not only has had me watch it several times, but actually made me have a good deal of respect for it. So here are the film's plus points. It looks incredible. Yep, this is a post-apocalyptic science fiction film that is mostly free of CGI and utilizes huge sets and stunning locations in Oregon, Arizona and Washington State. Dances with Wolves works so well because Costin is able to attach meaning and the grandeur of the location to the yearning of Dunbar's desire to experience the American West in its pre-modernity form. We are used to the visual tropes of the Western, yet Cosner and composer John Barry are able to once again attack the genius sense of wonder and awe to vast rolling grasslands stretching for as far as the eye can see. The, the postman subverts the science fiction trend of vast cityscapes and technological environments to reconfigure America as a pre-industrial subsistence driven society. America is back to its pre-frontier form. Man uses horses as the main mode of transport and live in isolated communities complete with barricades and village mayors running the shows. The cause of this isolation is the disbandment of the American government, being replaced with lights of cult leaders like General Bethlehem, played by Will Patton. The cult is eerily reminiscent of Gannis' McInnes' Proud Boys fraternity in which seemingly sexually repressed men rally around a rather unimpressive leader dressed rather badly. The Postman reinforces the idea that there is a connective tissue that runs through American is, and that's the notion of being an American. Without that shared norm, those in this world feel disconnected and ultimately unable to collectively fight back against the Bethlehem cult. The film is unashamedly patriotic in its belief that as an ideal, America and being America is a driving force for good, and Costner distills this view to the American Postal Service. Finding a discarded uniform and undelivered letters, the postman connected the various communities under the falsehood that the United States has been restored, with the President Starkey now in charge. Charge. The Stars and Stripes begin to reappear, and quickly a postal service resumes with the unrelenting and positive and hopeful Henry Ford Lincoln, played by Lorenz Tate, begin to get the communities connected again. Now one can sneer at the film's goofiness, but it does kind of have a point. There is a something to be said for a collective and having a centralised point with which to relate to. And yes, I'm advocating the need of government and shared identity. The postman in this respect is quite relevant. We are living in the most polarizing times I can remember. I feel to a degree we have decamped into silos with groups screaming at each other from their respective position. Into this we have seen the rise of fringe groups and charismatic online leaders. Bethlehem speaks of a Nathan Holt, a figure who arose after the event that caused the apocalypse to bring the puritanical order to the lands. Since the film's relief, we have had ISIS, an Islamic death cult whose use of social media to record their hideous crimes has served a hideous reminder of man's ability to subject the other to rules of despotic evilness. And Bethlehem, reject, re and Bethlehem reacts something like them, murdering civilians and uses torture and terror as a form of control. He rejects formal government as a mere sideshow in favour of running his cult, clearly believing it to be the true way of running the country and humanity. This fractured, broken world is a scarily real metaphor to the present, gravitating to a whole host of online personalities, all attracting legions of fans in lieu of actual amount of facts, said philosophers spout. 
It's a strange time for sure, and one that I do feel a great deal of pessimism for. That's why when I go back to it, I find it vaguely comforting. And I do have to give Costner credit. It's refreshingly devoid of CGI. You believe those sets because they are real. And it's a huge film. You can see where the budget has gone. But there is a lingering sense that visually Costner is retreading shot and motifs straight from Dances with Wolves, including a moment where he actually rides a horse in front of the gathered enemy. But also being said, the postman does allow itself to embrace the stupid. A cameo from Tom Petty as Tom Petty is kind of brilliant. You look at the screen and say, that's Tom Petty, and it's actually Tom Petty. It kind of reminded me of when Boy George was in the A-Team, and I mean that in a good way. But of course, The Postman does have some issues, namely how utterly ridiculous it is. The screenplay by Eric Roth and Brian Hangland is terrible, and how the actors are supposed to deliver these lines with a straight face is actually beyond me. There are some moments in the film that are cringeworthily bad, making the Hallmark Channel look like a bastion of quality. And of course there is the love interest in the way of Olivia Women's. Of course there is a love interest in the way of Olivia Williams, shoehorned in to be impregnated by the postman for poorly executed infertility reasons. Her husband needed to say gets bumped off and he looked like a complete dweeb anyway. But by God is this a tokenistic character and the worst kind of generic female character unmanageable. She screams pot device, but is barely more than a collection of words that have been gathered and served up to her by Hangland and Roth. Will Patton is not scary. We understand him to be a copy machine salesman in his previous life and quite frankly he is about as intimidating as one. Then there is the costume design which the eerily look like offcasts from an All Saints sale or extras from the unforgivable Andrew Lloyd Webber Borefest Starlight Express. And despite pseudo-intellectualising the message of the postman, it is a fucking stupid premise, with Lincoln Ford's dopey enthusiasm reminding me of an evangelical pro-abstinence campaigner pumps the gills on his newfound calling. It feels a little desperate as well, like when someone tries to coax you into doing something that you don't want to do under the guise of it being fun, when you know deep down it probably won't be. The zenith of the film's phony emotion comes when we see the postman on his rounds and accidentally missing a young boy with his not unattractive mother at the homestead. He turns, the music swells, and he gallops full pace, taking the letter from the child's hand. It's a moment that when we arrive at the film's conclusion, which appears to be filmed on the set of Dawson's Creek, that has been immortalised in a bronze statue with the, thank with the thankful surviving masses introduced by, of course, the postman's daughter. Then from the crowd, as cringeworthily as you, you will ever hear, a man announces solemnly, he was the boy. It's a tragically awful conclusion to one of the most stupid films ever made, but I cannot help but like it. It's a vanity project for a man who possibly thought he was doing the world a service, yet there is fun to be had here and I won't say leave your brain at the door because it's that's annoying anyway, but even at three hours the postman, despite being as dumb as a brick, is a reminder in why I love films. I'm a cynical miserable sod, yet I can quite happily watch it and lose myself in the nonsense. Some say there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure, and I kind of agree with that. And if you haven't seen it, I cannot hand and heart tell you that you should. But if you post-apocalyptic dances with walls rip-offs of your thing, then this is definitely one for you. Okay, so that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Framescast. I will return hopefully soon. Many thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at 24 Framescast. You can find me on uh, at 24framescast.blogspot.com or you can find me on Facebook. Many thanks for listening and I'll be in contact soon. Bye.